So with this 100% clean energy bill, California is now trying to imagine its energy market out to 2045. Assuming we're still a country by then, I can't even imagine what things are going to look like in 2045. What do you guys think? No coal. Uh, consumers being a real part of the grid and benefiting and a lot of stuff that we can't even imagine right now. And the electric utility companies won't exist anymore. (laughs) I think they're going to be the last to die off, honestly. Jigger, you sent us an article this week from 2016. I don't even think you can imagine 2018 right now. Well, you know, we have to learn from our history. It's called catching up on reading. (laughs) (laughs) Have you guys ever seen Blade Runner 2049? Everyone's so psyched about 2045 right now, but... I don't know if they've ever seen those California solar fields at the beginning of Blade Runner 2049. It's scary stuff. Yeah, you know, the the funny thing about us being so popular now in like pop culture is that I see weird things happening on the bad side. Like, for instance, I was watching NCIS LA and the terrorists were, of course, a solar company who were eco-terrorists. And I'm like, uh, no, I don't think so. I don't know of any solar companies or eco-terrorists. No, the solar companies are going to be like the oil majors, you know? They're not going to be the little terrorists. <laughs> so speaking of one of those important, fast-growing solar companies, Mission Solar, it's our sponsor in the Energy Gang. They're a solar manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Two states have now passed 100% clean energy targets, and a ton of cities are doing it. So let's get as many American solar panels in those areas as possible. Mission Solar has a 200-megawatt module facility in Texas, so source your panels from Mission for the highest quality American-made products. And... In 2045, they'll still be operating. So when the solar cartel takes over, Mission Solar will be there front and center. Find out more at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, California passes a bill to source 100% clean electricity by 2045. What does that actually mean? And more importantly, how will the target be met? Then, writing in the New York Times this weekend, journalist Bethany McLean warned about fracking's financial bubble. Wait, haven't we heard that before? Is this a dire warning or a rehash of old arguments? And then we'll end with a look at battery materials. Supply is suddenly clobbering lithium producers. Uh, Chileans are battling mining companies over access to water. Blockchain firms are targeting the battery material supply chain as sustainability concerns grow. Uh, We'll talk about uh, all that stuff. Just a general peek at the materials situation as batteries boom. Plus, we'll have a free electron for you at the end of the show. Hey, Jigger, you're back from wherever you were on your birthday. How's it going? Thanks. I was in Portland, Maine. Oh, I love Portland. What were you doing there? Just hanging out. We, uh, you know, had a good time on uh, a boat and we went out to an island and we, you know, went to the beach and it was fun. Nice. Catherine, how's it going? Well, school is back in. Everybody's back from vacation and I won't get a seat on my bus until next summer. That's Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner at 38 North Solutions. Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. They are my co-hosts. We are back to school. We're finally together. Fall is ramping up. And there's a lot to talk about per usual. So let's go over to California where there was a ton of activity as lawmakers reached the end of the legislative season. Uh, last week, they passed a slew of energy measures including a bill that would require the state to get 60% of its electricity from renewables by 2030 and 100% from carbon-free sources by 2045. They also extended behind-the-meter subsidies to batteries and passed a bill protecting utilities from wildfire damages. Those are also really important. They failed to get a bill authorizing California to expand into a bigger regional grid network. So earlier this year, Hawaii was the first state to set a 100% renewable energy target, also by 2045. California is different for a couple of reasons, though. One, it's such a big state. As of this year, it's the fifth largest economy. And number two, they're approaching it very differently, opting for a clean energy target rather than strictly renewables. Uh, I think we'll try to describe the difference between the two and whether it actually matters ultimately when we get toward the 2040s. So, Catherine, what's in this 100% bill? Tell us what it includes. 
Yeah. So just to let you know, my sources, I talked to Evan Gillespie at the Sierra Club, Susanna Churchill from Vote Solar, and Dan Jacobson from Environment California, who really quarterbacked this whole process. And he and a bunch of these folks have been working since the original RPS in 2002. Remember, that was 20% by 2020. And they made this gambit that in the long term, PPAs and utilities being able to and, and outsiders being invest in large scale wind and solar would eventually come become cheaper than other traditional sources of energy. And they were right. And the market has exploded. So they're at this perfect place where they can really look to something that is much bigger. So um, this was actually brought up first by Senator the Kevin DeLeon, who's the president of the California Senate, who came to the Enviros and said, what if we did 100%? What if we went to 100% renewables or clean energy or zero carbon? Let's let's think of something that's really an inspiring goal. And the Enviros all kind of looked at each other and said, okay, that sounds good. Um, so they set this big goal. But the way that they've structured the bill is that, yes, it's 60% of an RPS by 2030. But the RPS in California does not include hydro. So what they did was they put flexibility in the second part of the bill. For, so from 2030 to 2045, the state can set goals of 100% clean energy, but that can include hydro. It can include nuclear. It can include things that we don't even know exist. And it can also include a lot of integration technologies. So that's the key is that, yes, renewables are certainly on target to continue to grow significantly. But then there's also this great flexibility to be able to allow a lot of other new and existing clean energy technologies to participate. Things we don't know exist. Does that include Elon Musk's unicorn farts by 2045? And long-term storage, seasonal storage, <laughs> you know, all my favorite Right, things. right, all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Jigger, 100% renewable energy versus 100% clean energy. What's the difference? Will it have a material impact as we get into the late 2030s, 2040s? Well, I certainly think that for those of us who have studied this for a long time, 100% renewables doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I think 100% clean energy is the right way to do it because I do think that at some point there will be some merit to CCS or you know carbon capture and storage or nuclear or other types of technologies that may or may not be you know classified today as renewables. And so I think it's important for it to be a zero carbon standard. But I do think it's important to note, as we did on the podcast, you know, many moons ago, that the 100% renewables piece is what captured the imagination of the voters, right? This bill was not really going anywhere two years ago. I, I just think that there's this, this like sort of, you know, fill in the blank, um, you know, nostalgia around, oh, California has been really like driving towards this. This was an inevitability, but it really wasn't. I, I don't think that um, 100% uh, standard was really in the offing until, you know, the presidential campaign of 2016, when I think, you know, like Hillary begrudgingly said, okay, I'll sort of kind of go this way. Martin O'Malley said 100% fossil fuel free. Bernie Sanders has been pushing it the entire time. You're getting a lot of political saliency out of the argument now, which is why I think a couple of Democrats at the end there changed their vote and decided to help pass this bill. Yeah. So actually, on that point, um, the folks at Political Climate this morning released a podcast where they talked about the history of the 100% renewable energy movement and how a lot of people laughed those folks out of the room for many years. And now, five years later, as that movement has matured, you have major Democratic candidates embracing it and you actually see legislative movement. So very interesting to see how that's transformed. Outside of the reality of the target, it has truly set in motion uh, you know, political change. Yeah. And the polling in California showed that this 100% clean energy had 72% support. It's hard to get 72% support for almost anything anymore. And almost half of G people who align with the GOP said that they supported this. I think they're one of the key issues also is that even the folks who opposed the bill did not oppose climate change as a concept and as something that they needed to address. And I got to tell you, the wildfires had an impact out there. So a lot of people started their statements either in opposition or support for this bill um, talking about wildfires and how this is something we really need to deal with. And so, yes, it captured the imagination in a positive standpoint, but it also really 
provided a visceral backdrop to we have got to do something in this state. And everybody um, in both parties agreed that something has to be done. So this is our opportunity to put some pretty heavy-duty research into action. There have been a number of really great analyses over the years looking at the viability of 100% renewables or what the optimal carbon-free grid is. My favorite piece of analysis that I've read was a meta-analysis from Jesse Jenkins and some colleagues from, it must have been a year and a half ago now, and they looked at the optimal renewable energy grid versus other carbon resources, carbon-free resources. And they found that like an 80% renewable grid with 20% carbon-free resources was more economically optimal than a 100% renewable energy grid. And even when accounting for the high costs and accelerating costs of nuclear, um, they found that a combination of a bunch of other technologies could actually be optimal just because super saturated grids with just wind and solar can be a little bit more difficult to manage. They are manageable. You know, it is totally doable, but you start to incur some pretty major uh, economic costs when you get really, really high. Anyway, we actually now get to test that. We're still a long ways out, of course, but uh, it's it's kind of interesting that California has put in place that particular model. Of course, that uh that you know the 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 next 40% of carbon-free resources it's we still don't know what that's going to look like, but you know, I, it's for for once we actually get to stop talking about this on the pages of academic journals and put it into practice. Yeah, and this will force the state to look at integrated resource planning that it would include much more demand response, distributed storage, and also have a big push on integration technologies and tools. And I think those are going to have to be built into anything. Honestly, you know, you can look at any grid you want. It's going to be different based on the resources that each grid has. But in all cases, in order to get to 100% clean, you've got to have all these other tools that, that allow everything to operate smoothly together. Well, and these technologies, as we talked about, have been around for a long time. You know, I think, you know, my firm owns two of the contracts for the load control reduction RFP that Southern California Edison put out. And I think, you know, I speak for almost everyone who bid on that, that their experience with Southern California Edison has been, you know, very suboptimal, right? And so part of this is trying to figure out, you know, how does everyone sit on an even playing field? How does load control and demand response and electric vehicle charging and lots of other types of strategies get paid fairly under this new construct. Doesn't seem like the utilities were all that enthusiastic about this. Where do the major investor-owned utilities in California sit? PG&E was one of the biggest in opposition, along with the Western States Petroleum Association. Um, I mean, so many people were for this. The coalition and support was so large um, that it was stark in comparison to utility opposition. I would say it a little bit differently. I think... The state had the utilities over a barrel. Um, they so desperately wanted protection against the fire damage, which was basically ready to bankrupt all three utilities, that they were they traded that for, um, you know, not standing in, in the way of this bill. Right. So, okay, lawmakers can pass this bill. Uh, we're going to see, at, at, as of this recording, Jerry Brown has not signed it, but I think a lot of people expect that he will. But So lawmakers can pass this bill. They're going to sit back with their arms crossed behind their head and say, hey, look what we did. And now uh, the regulators have a pretty tricky job to do. Uh, the industry has uh, its work cut out for it. What the heck does California need to do now to restructure its markets further? Because it doesn't look like regionalization is going to be going forward. So what are the next steps as we go forward into the coming decades? Yeah, I think what this does on a broad basis is create a market signal for innovators and to bring money in to further invest in California. And what that will do is by bringing even more stakeholders into the mix will allow for even richer ability to do complete integrated resource planning to make sure that all of these aggregators and innovators are allowed to participate. I mean, this is a huge, and I'm sure Jigger can attest to this, this is a huge economic opportunity in California. And I think it isn't just limited to California. Remember, um, Jerry Brown is hosting this big climate summit next week that'll bring people from all over the world. And I think everybody in the world is looking at California, but other states are looking at California too. And how do we then take this kind of structure 
um, which has some targets, very specific targets that allow for certainty for investment, but then also gives a lot of flexibility for for new um, solutions to come in. How do we translate that then to other places um, that aren't as far along as California already is? So I think the big thing that's going to come out of this that folks are not really thinking about is this is going to force an extraordinary amount of integration and focus on electric vehicles and electrification broadly. Because the only way this works is if more of the California economy is electric. You can't make this transition and have all these stranded assets if you don't grow the total amount of electricity sold in California. So I think California has been on this you know, energy efficiency kick for a long time, which is fantastic. But I think that if you don't actually grow sales by one to 2% a year, um, then I think you're going to find that this becomes quite unaffordable, this transition. And so I think you're going to find that everyone will be focused, in, especially the Public Utilities Commission, on figuring out how to make electrification of vehicles happen faster so that the electric utilities have growth. And I think everybody wants that generally. However, doesn't uh, load growth beyond what's currently modeled make it harder to source more renewables and clean energy uh, for you know as a percentage of your total consumption in the state? No, seems I, like it would make the job harder. No, well, the, the beauty of electric vehicles is because the batteries are so large, right? Think about it. If if ten percent of all of the vehicles that are actively used in California became electric, it would be able to back up a hundred percent of the the electricity grid in California, actually more like 500% of the electricity grid in California. And so it doesn't take a lot of electric vehicles to actually back up the entire grid. And so that's the, that's the trick here is that, you know, these batteries are basically fully paid for by the consumer who actually wants to just, you know, drive the car. And the, the value added services and the value stacking become purely incremental and not really you know, necessary to fund the car itself, but just um, becomes incremental value to the grid and then to the owner of the car. Yeah. And Stephen, there are also two issues. One is the operations issue. Are you going to have enough resources at any given time? But the, but the, partnership to that, the other hand of it is tariff structures. So make sure that the Public Utility Commission puts in place rates and and allows people to participate in demand response, which is incredibly untapped resource out there. So if you expand that and allow vehicles to be part of that too, that that will enable you to get a lot more resources without having to build additional large wind power plants, for example, but allow you to use what you've already got. So we're in a bit of a honeymoon phase here. We're assuming Governor Brown is going to sign the bill. Seems like everybody is on, you know, the same page. The 100% renewable people, the 100% clean energy people. There wasn't that much opposition to the bill. The utilities foot dragged into this, but look, it got passed, and I think everyone's super psyched. But what could go wrong here? I'm just curious. Like, if we think through the next steps for this, is there anything that could go terribly wrong that we should be keeping our eyes on? So I actually asked this question to Evan Gillespie of the Sierra Club. I said, what can Trump do to muck it up? And he said, well, I just, he said, this feels safe. He said, obviously, I don't have the proper imagination to come up with what could he possibly do because we just don't always know. But I think the one thing that we do have to keep an eye on is the regionalization of the grid. Because one of the issues is that right now, CalISO has a pretty good position within FERC that FERC kind of leaves them alone to manage their own you know, California resource mix. And yes, there's an energy imbalance market that we can use as well, but there's not true reg- regionalization in that then California would be much more um, controlled by FERC. And right now, FERC is in a little bit of a precarious position, or at least there's a lot of uncertainty because there are four commissioners at split. A lot of the staff uh, for the chairman are taking very strong positions publicly. That is not something we've ever seen before. So we don't really know what it's going to what FERC is going to do. And I think one of the potential threats would be would be if it becomes too controlled by FERC and FERC does something to change the market structure in California. Well, I don't know that anything is going to go terribly wrong. I just think that this continues the the trend of the market destabilizing. Like, I do think that the utility companies more and more have become sort of distribution and transmission companies. And as that continues, 
it's going to be less important to have them and their overhead. And so you will see a push over the next 15 years to really just merge all the utilities together. And they may even be asked to merge with the California ISO and just become a grid, you know, sort of balancing um, operation and not really um, a utility company that serves you as, you know, people understand it today. But you guys think we'll be okay in terms of resource adequacy? We have we have more generation capacity than we've ever had in the history of that term. Yeah, and I asked all of the people that I interviewed, do you think that California will be a model for other states? And if that's true, what are the next states do you think? And and are you know, there's states that are already moving forward like Hawaii in which a similar bill passed. New York is probably on the way, maybe maybe Massachusetts. Well, those are kind of the usual suspects. But what about states like the ones in the wind corridor, like the Dakotas and Nebraska, Texas, Iowa, that have an enormous quantity of wind and have high percentages of wind penetration? You know, maybe they could leapfrog some of the growing pains that California has gone through. Of course, it'll be with a very different resource mix and maybe look differently. But California could show them that you can do it, um, it you know, and, and um maybe pay down some of the risk. So Jigger, does this change the way that a company like Generate Capital, your firm, does business in California? Well, it depends, right? I mean, one of the big challenges with this um, new framework is it may end up being that everyone gets paid on a merchant basis through the California ISO for services provided. And if that happens, then it's hard for Generate, who basically funds PPAs, um, to get involved, right? It, it's more a game for NextEra or some of these other companies who, you know, are happy to just buy merchant power plants. Um, I, you know, so we'll have to see where it goes. But I think, you know, the LCR contracts that we own today are all long-term contracts that Southern California Edison is paying on. I don't know whether that's going to be the new structure moving forward or whether it's all going to be merchant revenues where, you know, today you could get paid for a dollar for that, and tomorrow you could get paid 10 cents for it. Let's take a quick break here. Talk about Mission Solar Energy. The race for 100% clean energy is on. Solar is exploding, jobs are booming, and Mission Solar is at the center of this transition. Mission Solar has a 200 megawatt module production facility in San Antonio, Texas, making it easier for installers and developers to get their hands on American made products. Let's make this localized energy transition as local as possible, and let's do it with the best products that the market can offer. Mission Solar offers both. Mission will soon have a new higher watt module available this year. You can find out more about Mission's products at missionsolar.com. Our next topic causes a perennial debate in energy circles. Is the fracking boom a fracking bubble, or a house of cards, or a Ponzi scheme, or whatever you want to call it? Politicians, activists, Wall Street banks, and hedge fund managers have all waited on this. The argument, which we've seen in different forms since around 2011, is that frackers have relied on low interest rates and a never-ending supply of Wall Street debt to fuel the drilling boom in this country. Historically, very few drilling operations have ever made a profit, and their well-decline rates are extremely high. And the only thing keeping them afloat are Wall Street bankers who are more than happy to collect financing fees and pretend the music will never stop. The latest person to make that argument is Bethany McLean. She's a journalist who co-authored The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is a famous book about Enron. She's also written extensively about the financial crisis. She wrote a piece in the New York Times over the weekend, adapted from her new book about fracking. Um, she, she basically made the argument that I just made. She's gotten some pushback. Again, we've been hearing variations of this argument for about eight years. Well, what happened in those eight years? A lot of companies did go out of business. There were troubles, but a lot of drillers got better. They dropped costs. Drilling techniques got better. And although decline rates are still really high, the industry was able to make up for it, at least for now. So how much credence should we give the fracking bubble argument? Where do things stand today? Um, Jigger, you've kind of sounded off on this before. Thoughts on the soundness of McLean's argument? Well, you know... (laughs) So I definitely agree that the fracking industry is not as profitable as I would have expected them to be. But her piece was terrible. I mean... Why do you think it was terrible? I think she's actually a better journalist around the story of people. And it's not unlike Michael Lewis, you know. But like she tried to get into the technical terms of what investors were doing in this piece, and she got it terribly wrong. 
right? Such as like, what what technical terms in finance did she get wrong? Well, I think that she was trying to say that there was an Enron esque sort of quality to fracking, and that people were basically lying to investors, and that investors were too stupid to understand what they were doing. And the hedge fund managers and the private equity managers who manage the money are the ones who are getting rich, while the pension funds are sort of being, are left holding the bag. As, as someone who is, and then she separately later said that this was like the dot-com boom, where people got um, valuations based on eyeballs. But that's not the same thing, right? In the dot-com boom, when people did eyeballs, they had no revenue. They were just focused on eyeballs. Here, these companies have major revenues, and you have very established forward markets for commodities, et cetera, right? So they have real cash flow flowing through their business, and they are actually making debt service payments. And, you know, as someone who raises money from pension funds, I know a lot of these pension funds, and they are knowing, they know exactly what they're investing in when they invest in these companies. Their whole thing is basically that they believe that the U.S. oil and gas, uh, you know, sort of industry is now the swing producer in the world, not Saudi Arabia, but the U.S. oil and gas industry. They got tested heavily in 2014 by the Saudis. And when oil prices went down, these guys, yes, had some right sizing to do, but they didn't go under. And now they're stronger than ever, as you suggested. And they believe this is an option, right? And so that when oil prices or gas prices go up, which in their minds, they invariably does, all sins will be lost, all previous losses will be recaptured, and everyone will make a crap load of money, right? That's their thesis. But they're not going into this as fools. They're going into this with a specific thesis. Yeah. And my sense is that a lot of this depends on the resource and how to get to it. I'm no expert on this, but I was looking at a PowerPoint from Mark Papa, the CEO of Centennial Resource Development, who says that, you know, the Bakken and Eagle Ford um, shale resources, that there's a lack of the tier one, kind of the highest, um, easiest, most valuable resource to get. And so then you go move down to tier two and tier three, and that's much of the remaining inventory. The Permian Basin is bigger, but again, you know, once you get that first slug, it then diminishes um, as you, as you move forward. So he's looking at the Delaware Basin. So I think there are, there are issues of depletion as you, as you continue to drill. And, and I think some, some big pieces are going to be continued technology development to be able to get to tier two and tier three and make those cost effective. And also on the policy side, because states are putting in place a lot of policies that are restricting methane emissions and other, you know, water use. And I think while some of those are actually going to be good in the long run for, for technology and for the good players and for making sure that they can recover everything that they are able to drill and, you know, make the most of it. I think those are also kind of unknowns out there. So what I liken this to is, frankly, the demand response and load control markets in the United States, right, which is like Enernoc and Converge and Itron and a lot of these companies who are doing that work, where they fundamentally believed that grid flexibility was a better way of providing grid resources than, you know, a physical natural gas peaker plant or some of these other resources that folks are doing, including battery storage. But, you know, they've never gotten valued properly by the PJM or, you know, the California ISO or ERCOT or other people, right? Which is why Enernoc ended up having to sell itself for like 200 or 300 million bucks. But the people who keep putting money into new companies in this space are betting that SB100 and all these other things will finally be the catalyst by which all of these losses that they made for 10 plus years in demand response and load control will finally pay dividends, right? Why do they keep putting money into it when it's been such a terrible investment? Because they think that the market will turn around. They think that they will be properly valued one day and that their theoretical models will actually you know, line up to reality. It's sort of the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think you've scoffed at my comparison to solar jigger, but I think if we step back and look at the narrative about solar and the narrative about natural gas, there is some overlap. So many people 
scoffed at solar for so long. They thought it would never make money. They thought it was only propped up by government subsidies and that it was a big Ponzi scheme. And what did the industry do uh, across you know, every sector? They worked diligently to continue to reduce costs and they proved everybody wrong. The same happened in natural gas. Everyone thought, oh, the decline rates are going to cause these companies to collapse. Uh, you know, they, they kind of assumed fixed drilling costs. And even when, you know, the IEA was talking about unconventional resources before we really explored them, talking about this massive resource, everyone kind of scoffed like, oh, the U.S. will never become the biggest oil or gas producer. But again, drillers proved time and time again that they could continue to reduce costs. Sure, a lot of them went out of business, but you saw consolidation and more effective companies come in and continue to reduce costs. So look, they're two very different sectors, but I think the narrative about both solar and natural gas um, fracking, it's very similar. And there's a lot of overlap and experience between the two. The issue is that fracking does have much more significant air, water, and geologic locational impacts. And so unlike solar that has issues around air and water quality, I think fracking in the long term is going to have to change the way it does its business to make sure that it's able to continue because it has a lot of negative impacts that communities and states are pushing back on. Right, totally. And I think that's the difference here. Uh, you know, I, I'm being careful to focus on the narrative up to this point, right? The narrative about the financial collapse of the fracking industry. But when you see bills like SB 100 in California, where they're trying to phase out natural gas over time, and a lot of other states are probably going to follow suit, you know, over the coming years, that that's that's kind of a worrisome sign. But it's different from the financial challenges as identified by McLean in this New York Times piece. Yeah, I wouldn't. So I'll grant you the fact that the people who are so passionate about solar and passionate about natural gas, that their passion sort of fuels the thesis. And that's, I think, probably similar. The part where I disagree with you on, and I have for a long time, is that like my father actually owns sort of a bond in solar, why? Because it, it, it is really guaranteed to pay him back a 7% return over 20 years. If, if I convinced my father to buy bonds in a diversified fracking portfolio, I think we would both agree that that would be way more risky. And so I just feel like just because the fracking companies are capable of raising an extra 30, 50, 60 billion dollars a year to keep their dream alive doesn't mean that from a pure financial standpoint, they're actually um, a good investment, right? Like a good investment means that over the next 20 years, do you think the discounted cash flows from the profits of that company are worth whatever it is that you're buying? And I think the jury's still out on fracking, right? I mean, if oil prices stay at 50 bucks a barrel, I think everyone believes, everyone without exception, believes that the oil, the fracking companies today are overvalued. I think that they are all betting on oil spiking back to $100, $130 a barrel, which could happen. I mean, you know, peak oil and this and that and everything else. But I think if that doesn't happen, everyone in the fracking industry will end up being disappointed in their investment thesis. So let's end the show with a look at some different consequences, upstream consequences of our electric vehicle and energy storage boom, which are part of this broader battery boom. Data from Wood Mackenzie's Battery Raw Materials Service shows major fluctuations in pricing for lithium, nickel, and cobalt, showing that energy-related applications are having an impact right now on raw materials pricing and availability. There's currently some worry about lithium oversupply, which is slowing new lithium mining. That's sparked worries about lithium oversupply in coming years as mining new mining operations um, you know, fail to scale up, which could spike prices. This is very similar to what we've seen in the solar industry with silicon prices. Uh, meanwhile, on the human side, the people who are living on the lands where these materials are being mined and working in the mines themselves, they're, they're clashing over access to water and royalty payments. So where should we start? Um, always best to start with people, I guess. So Jigger sent around this fantastic Washington Post feature from late 2016, about how indigenous communities in South America's lithium triangle 
were feeling pushed out of the lithium boom. Uh, that has been getting passed around Twitter recently, which is why we picked it up. Um, and years later, we're still seeing these problems persist. Right now, as we speak, communities in Chile are battling mining firms over access to water. So, Jigger, why did you think it was important to talk about this uh, darker side of battery production? Well, I, you know, I just I find it really curious, just on, on an anthropological basis, that you know, folks sort of believe that they're better than they are. Um, when you look at lithium production, it is just mining. It is the same mining that happens in the Democratic Republic of the Congo for cobalt. It's the same mining that occurs in Mongolia. It's all the same, right? Like, and I just think that for all of these folks, you know, to say that they're 100% renewable, like Apple or, you know, Tesla saying that they're changing the world or other things, you know, I, it's not clear to me that these companies are taking the same level of uh, rigor to their supply chain around social justice that they do on their direct electricity consumption or recycling or other things that they do for their companies. And it's, it's worrisome because I think that they actually have a huge influence over how much these indigenous people get paid for, um, you know, the resources in their area or the services that they, they get provided or how their water is treated, etc. But it's not clear to me that they're actually leading in that area. That's a great point. And there's some historical precedent for this. If you look back five, six, seven years ago, companies like Facebook and uh, Facebook in particular, but some of the other tech giants were very skeptical about 100% renewable energy or just buying renewable energy in general. Uh, Facebook was very heavily dependent on coal. And what happened? Well, Greenpeace came in. They issued a report and a campaign, created a campaign called uh, Facebook Unfriend Coal. And then they got all these consumer groups involved and then industry got involved and everyone said, look, renewables are cheaper. There was consumer demand for the change. And all of a sudden, like Facebook made this about switch within a year or two. And now, as of this month, they're planning on sourcing 100% of their electricity from renewable resources. The same happened with all the other corporate giants. It was a combination of activist pressure and changing prices. Now, my sense is that a company like Tesla or a company like Apple could basically just overnight change how some of these mining operations work by saying, we're only going to work with mining operations that um, engage in these practices. Now, the lithium market in particular is very difficult to dissect. There are tons of suppliers. They're all selling to each other. It's not super easy, but you could absolutely impact change very quickly if you know some of these large end consumers with huge market weight change their practices. So I, I agree with that jigger, but I do see it a little bit more positively because it you know activist pressure and consumer pressure can encourage change on this front. Yeah, and so can technology. So I talked to David Deke, who used to be Tesla's person lead on um, sourcing their raw materials. And he now is CTO of Lithium Americas and president of Lithium Nevada. And he he kind of did a little tutorial for me. And first of all, lithium right now is in an embryonic stage. It is a very small market compared to other resource markets, but it has it's on the cusp of this enormous four to five times in the decade growth. So it is something we have to pay attention to. Right now, it doesn't have a large ecological footprint although locationally it does in certain places. And there's sort of four ways that we get lithium. One, and this is where this story was from, is brines in South America. They have very low energy use because basically it's direct solar evaporation in these enormous evaporation ponds. However, it's enormous water use. So there has to become some innovation on the water use side with this type of extraction of lithium. The second one is, as Jigger said, mining. So hard rock mining that's mostly being done in Australia. And that has very high energy costs um, and high CO2. So that's another place where innovation is going to need to occur if it's going to be cleaner. Um, the third one is what D David is working on, which is this clay-based resource, which is low technology, smaller energy footprint, smaller water footprint, and it's clay-based. And I would 
posit that the fourth one is really recycling. So companies like Umicore are starting recycling of lithium. The problem is that it right now it is at such a small market that it's not cost effective to recycle right now, but it's something that we're going to have to do in the long run. And we have to start thinking about this now, the resourcing for it in all of these different technology areas to make sure that you know that we keep the CO2 footprint lower, that, that we um, that we come up with better water technologies, um, and that we think, as you all have both said, about the environmental justice implications. So uh, this is an area where I think blockchain could have an immediate impact. I, as a consumer, would be willing to pay more for my electronics or my clothes or anything to be able to have an immutable record that shows where that resource or, you know, those threads or whatever were sourced from. And I think that there are a bunch of startups out there that are trying to use blockchain to track where materials are coming from, uh, all the way back to the source in this very tricky environment where it can be hard to track this stuff. And, uh, you know, you could probably do it without any additional cost to the consumer, but that's something that I would absolutely be willing to pay a premium for on my electronics to know that the money went back to indigenous communities or the, the the mining practice was done in a way that was more was less energy intensive or used less water, whatever the metric might be. Uh, that that to me is incredibly important, and there's just zero way to create incompatibility as a consumer. Yeah, Everledger's has has been doing this for diamonds, and um, you could easily do that as well for cobalt and lithium. Yeah, but this is where Anand Giridas's new book "Winners Take All" comes in, right? Which is, you know, he's sort of making the case that all this premium stuff, blockchain, da da da, whatever else, is fine. But in the end, this is something that should just be government mandated. Like, I don't know why California on the recycling side just doesn't say, like, you know, hey, you need to have an end to end process for how you actually recycle your batteries if you want to do business in the state of California. It's not dissimilar to what Germany required First Solar to do on Cadmium Telluride and say you need to figure out exactly how to do end-to-end recycling of your modules or else you can't sell in Germany. And First Solar magically figured it out. And I think you'll find all the electronics providers from Samsung on the phone side to the battery side to LG Chem to all these other folks will be like, oh, actually, we know how to do this recycling stuff and we figured it out. I don't want you to have to pay a premium for this. I want the government to just step in and say, make this work. Make sure that you are actually using a battery technology that can be recycled cost effectively, just like they did for lead acid batteries. I feel like we're on the cusp of that, though. Policy always is always a couple years behind market changes. And now that so many people have woken up to the sustainability and the social justice issues around sourcing these materials as they become so important in our everyday lives, woven into the fabric of our electronics that are with us all the time, now we're starting to wake up collectively. And so I, I, can't, I can't imagine that there won't be movement on this in a pretty big way. Yeah, there was already an executive order on critical materials that includes recycling and U.S. Geological Survey and Department of Commerce, um, the Trade Administration, are going to be releasing a report shortly. It's going to be kind of a living document that lists all the critical materials and also the state of recycling. So I think that's a good step in the right direction, and that's from the federal level. So what do you all make of the changes to um, these materials markets, right? They're fluctuating pretty wildly. Uh, it looks like these markets are being impacted today by the surge of electric vehicles and the, the use of stationary batteries and, of course, you know, batteries for electronics. But literally, the energy component is already starting to have an impact on material supply and materials pricing, and we ain't seen nothing yet. Thoughts on those changes and swings in prices currently? Well, I, this is the challenge with the market, right? So the investors that we talked about who like to invest in fracking are the similar investors who like to invest in mining. And they like to make the gargantuan profits when markets are short and much less profits when markets um, are oversupplied, like we believe that we're in today. Um, but this is the kind of thing that we can actually just bypass, right? I mean, several of the electric vehicle um you know, manufacturers could just go into a consortium and just buy 
um, lithium at a fixed price contract for the next 10 years uh, from some of these mines, right? And then you would just bypass all the market gyrations that went up and down and you would hedge you know, your lithium prices. And if you wanted to, you could even invest into some of these mines directly and then have a bigger impact on the say around how they treat their indigenous people and use water and all that stuff, right? This is this is the sort of, like the the volatility in the market is actually a direct, um, directly caused by um, the users of the product wanting to be one step removed from the process. So I think that topic has been sufficiently mined. I'm sure we'll we'll revisit it again. Uh, we really haven't talked a lot about the materials situation, but my sense is that we'll see a lot more movement on the policy front that will force industry-wide supply chain changes. And um, again, I'm particularly interested in the blockchain component of this. You know, as as the sustainability piece of batteries for energy becomes important to consumers and companies, there will be demand for this stuff. Let's give our audience a free electron. What is interesting happening in our lives? Um, what are we reading? Share your story. Jigger, you go first since it's your closest to your birthday. <laughs> well, um, I've got two actually. So there's you guys a... both always have two. <laughs> well, we just have so much to offer for You're free. You're brimming with electrons. This is, that is very true. I, you know, so I follow Gregor, Gregor McDonald a lot, and he uh, writes this Oil Fall series. He has made a very persuasive case that what China is doing around a decarbonizing elect, uh, transportation is at, a, at the same level of SB100 in California on decarbonizing electricity. That China is actually all in on 100% electric vehicles um, being sold on an incremental basis, uh, you know, starting in 2020, and that they plan to be pretty much 100% electric vehicles to its practical outcome by 2030. And that just seems like a very large story that none of us are following. Um, the other piece I wanted to highlight was The Economist came up with this great video that's going viral on Twitter, which I think is real, um, around um, HVAC and, you know, the fact that people are using air conditioning in very large numbers around the world from India to China, um, and that air conditioning is going to be the next big source of greenhouse gas pollution um, to tackle because uh, many of them are just so inefficient and, um, and many of them still use... Um, HFCs, which are not great for uh, uh, climate change. Catherine, what is your free electron? Or do you have free electrons this week? You always have two as well. I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's just there's a lot going on. So one is that EIA just released its CO2 emission profile and emission CO2 emissions continued to fall. They fell again in 2017 by about 1%. And this is, again, because of coal don't think that trajectory is going to change no matter what happens on public policy because coal plants continue to retire. Uh, the other thing is that while people are watching, uh, and I have to go to the Senate tomorrow, which I am, you know, my husband keeps saying, well, just don't get arrested. Um, I just have a meeting in the Senate Energy Committee, but there's a lot going on in the Senate, a lot of protests right now because of the Supreme Court uh, nomination process. But the Senate did approve overwhelmingly uh, two FERC bills. They were kind of technical changes. One was Senator Markey, S-186, and one was Congressman Wall. Wahlberg, H.R. 1109. And these are, you know, Markey's bill was to really um, amend the Federal Power Act to make sure that in the case of tie votes, which is what we have now, that everything doesn't just come to a standstill, but that orders are created that then um, stakeholders can appeal. So, so it creates a process around decisions, tariff decisions that the FERC may or may not be able to make because of a tie. Um, and then the other one was really just about approving uh, utility mergers and buyouts and and trying to correct some of the the language around that. So it's there are things happening. They're not huge, but um, processes continue in the Senate and at FERC that I have to monitor. Well, mine is politics, a political story out of Massachusetts that follows the surge of uh, feisty progressive candidates emerging in states out of primary races. So Ayanna Presley, 
a member of the Boston City Council, beat 10-term Representative Mike Capuano in yesterday's primary race. Capuano is a stalwart progressive, but he's been in office for 20 years. He's, he's, he's had the support of the Democratic establishment. Ayanna Presley uh, was told not to run in the primary. They said, wait your turn, basically. And she did not. And uh, she she came and, and surged and beat Capuano yesterday in the primary. So effectively, she will become uh, the the first African-American congresswoman from the state of Massachusetts because there's no Republican challenger this November. It's a very progressive district out of a very progressive state. People are comparing her to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who beat out an incumbent in New York. Um this is a story we've seen all around the country. You know, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Andrew Gillum of Florida, Ben Jealous of Maryland, all of whom won the Democratic Party's nominations uh, for, for governor. And they're all like really progressive candidates who are emerging from this post-Trump environment or let's say the, the current Trump environment. The most important piece of this is that Presley has been advocating for 100 percent renewable energy generation. Ocasio-Cortez has, some of these other gubernatorial candidates on the progressive side have. Uh, This is becoming baked into the Democratic Party platform, and it's being pushed by the most progressive candidates. So it's a rallying cry now, right? This is is the new reality of politics. Um, We're seeing a major shift here in terms of general politics and a major shift in terms of environmental and renewable energy politics. So Ayanna Presley here in Massachusetts was yet more evidence of that. Yeah, I'll tell you what, don't tell people we can't get to 100% and don't tell a woman she can't do something. <laughs> That's right. That is absolutely right. Well, I think that wraps it up nicely. Jigger, great to hear from you again. Catherine, fun as always. Uh, listeners, do us a favor. We ask this all the time, but it's so helpful. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. A ton of you have given rating and reviews more and more since we began asking that, and they're, they're so good and We really, really appreciate it. We appreciate your support. You know, if you want to get some ideas in this podcast and influence what we talk about, send us a message at podcast at greentechmedia.com or better yet, tweet at us at Catherine Jigger, myself, or the Energy Gang account. We, We see all those tweets and we'll do our best to respond to them. That's probably the best place to engage with us. Even though my Twitter usage is down lately, I still make sure to monitor the energy Twitter sphere. Uh, subscribe to us if you don't already. Most of you are subscribers, but you know, make sure you catch us on any platform where you can subscribe to podcasts or send a link to your colleagues or friends and family so they can subscribe to it and get the skinny on what's happening with this crazy energy transition we're in the middle of. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. We are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. 